Welcome to the Runner's World Show, where each week we entertain you, inspire you, and inform you about all things running. I'm David Willey, Editor-in-Chief of Runner's World. This week in the kick, Elvis wins the Rock and Roll Marathon in Las Vegas. Well, kind of. And with the holidays fast approaching, hard to believe we know, we share our favorite way to stay motivated during the sugar cookie season. We've also got a segment on how to stay upright on technical off-road terrain. But first, an interview with ultra runner Carl Meltzer. Carl recently broke the Appalachian Trail thru-hike record. It's a record he's been chasing for nearly a decade. And in his conversation with reporter Kit Fox, Carl talks about his previous attempts at the record, why this title is so meaningful to him, and what it takes to stay on task to run 47 miles a day for 45 days straight. Being very meticulous about what I was going to do was important. You know, I could have taken a million selfies out there on the trail. I could have blogged live all the time and had people run with me and all that kind of stuff. But I didn't want that because that takes away time of me moving forward. Stick around and thanks for joining us. Carl Meltzer is a heavyweight in the world of ultra running. The 48-year-old from Salt Lake City has won the Hard Rock 100 five times. In fact, he holds the world record for the most wins in 100 milers, 38. But the Appalachian Trail thru-hike record? That mark was his brass ring. Setting the fastest known time, or FKT as it's called, on the Appalachian Trail is a monstrous feat. The AT stretches roughly 2,100 miles through 14 states between Mount Katahdin in Maine and Springer Mountain in Georgia. When he went for it this summer, it was his third attempt at the record. He'd already run the whole thing once in 2008. It took him 54 days, a week off the record at the time. In 2014, he went for it again. He was following Jennifer Farr Davis's itinerary and using her pace as a guide. In 2011, she had set the fastest known time for the Appalachian Trail of just under 47 days. But during his 2014 run, Carl fell off pace early and bagged the attempt. Finally, in September, on his third attempt, Carl did it. He ran from Maine to Georgia in a record 45 days, 22 hours, and 38 minutes. That's an average of 47 miles a day through technical, hilly, and often just plain brutal terrain. He was accompanied to the summit of Springer Mountain in Georgia by Scott Jurek. You might remember that Scott set the FKT for the Appalachian Trail in the summer of 2015. Carl broke Scott's record by 10 hours. Three weeks after his historic run, a still pretty tired Carl sat down to talk with reporter Kit Fox. Kit wanted to know a lot of things about what it takes mentally, physically, logistically to set a fastest known time, starting with perhaps the most important question of all, why? I want to ask just why the FKT, because like, it's not officially sanctioned by anyone. You know, there's no accolades or prize money or medal of any kind. Um, you know, obviously you get written up about and, and it's very well respected, but but why is it so sought after? And for you, why was it such a goal? Well, the AT is just a goal because it's different than races. I mean, I don't need a medal or trophy. I've got plenty of medals and trophies. Um, and, you know, looking around here in my room here, I, there's plenty of stuff. I don't need that kind of thing. I think in the ultra world, 
the FKT is becoming a more popular thing now. Um, there's the Grand Canyon, the PCT, the AT. Uh, it's For me, it's like raising the bar for myself. It's not raising the bar to prove to anything to anyone else. I can care less if anyone really knows about this. For me, it was success for me, you know. Um, and, and if someone else goes out there and breaks it, that's fine. Um, that'll probably happen eventually, and that's fine. For, for me, it was just um, satisfaction in knowing that I can do it. It doesn't really matter to me whether I get a trophy or anything like that. The trophy's in my head. It's all that, you know, I made my own trophy at home. It's all that matters. When you say you made your own trophy, is that a mental trophy, or did you make <laughs> something physical? No, I've got something physical, actually. It's a 4 by 6 uh, big sign of the AT. It's about 6 feet tall, so it's pretty big. It's not necessarily mounted in my yard quite yet, but I plan on doing that and putting a white blazer on it here shortly. That, to me, that's my trophy. It just reminds me of the accomplishment. But, you know, I mean, that's that's for me. It's not for anyone else to see. It doesn't really matter to me if someone else sees that. It's just, you know, trophies are cool and everything, but... And, you know, maybe it means something to a lot of people, but for me, it's just uh, the fact that I've been successful really is what matters to me. It doesn't, you know, it keeps my career going and keeps my life happy, I guess. So I'm wondering, for the those of us that, that aren't, you know, superhuman like you are and, and have this ability to, to maintain the pace that you have, can you do the best that you can to put in perspective just like how hard what you did was how hard it is to to maintain 50 miles a day on the Appalachian Trail and what your body went through? Well, I think the hardest thing to do about the AT isn't necessarily the hiking and the walking and and that kind of thing. It's really about getting up the next morning. Um, A lot of people say, well, no one can do what you did. Well, everyone can do what I did. It just won't be as fast, I guess. It's the challenge of it is, is having to know that you have to go again eight hours after you go to bed. And, uh, you know, that's that's hard. 4.30, that ring, that alarm would ring every morning, and then off I'd go. And the walking part was easy. Not easy, but it's mentally it's a lot easier than getting up out of bed in the morning. That's that's the hardest part. So how did you force yourself to get out of bed each morning? Well, I forced myself to get out of bed every morning because if I didn't, then no one's breaking any records, right? <laughs> might, as well, <laughs> might as well go home if I don't get out of bed. So, I mean, it wasn't that hard. I mean, Eric, my crew guy, who was sleeping in the van at the same time with me, uh, you know, I would hear that jet boil fire up every morning when he was making my coffee. And, you know, that was my signal, like, okay, I got to get up again. Um, that's just how it is. You know, if you're not going to break the record, if, if you if you have enough desire to try to break a record like this, you have to focus and get up. You know, it was in my head all the time that I knew I could do it. I knew I was physically capable of doing it. The matter of was like, how well can you handle it mentally? And that's always been, you know, it's been a little bit of a problem with me on these on these long things before where I kind of broke down mentally a couple of times. And I broke down mentally on this one too, but I was still ahead of the record and stuff and was able to, you know, keep pace and, and eventually get to Springer Mountain faster than, faster than Jen or faster than Scott. You were pretty obsessive and meticulous about your preparation mm-hmm. into this attempt. Can you go through some of the things that you did to make sure that you know, like your crew met you at each specific spot and as much that didn't go wrong wouldn't? Well, I did a, the, a lot of the preparation that I did for this was kind of on my own. I drove to the East Coast and I drove the entire length of the AT in my car for my crew so they would have um, paper maps detailed of how to get to locations because a lot of times on the East Coast, everyone thinks you can just drop a pin and follow that little blue line on your phone, but that doesn't happen in Virginia or Maine. So, I went back there and was very meticulous about my crew being able to meet me every time. I think the number of crew stops that Eric counted was 232 this time. 
and they didn't miss me once. They missed me one time in Beartown Mountain Road, which was a another story, but uh, it wasn't really their fault. But at any rate, being very meticulous about what I was going to do was important. You know, I could have taken a million selfies out there on the trail. I could have blogged live all the time and had people run with me and all that kind of stuff. But I didn't want that because that takes away time of me moving forward. And, you know, if you do all the math, you do 20 minutes a day of those selfie things and all that kind of stuff, times that by 46, and you've got quite a few hours that you lost on the trail. So I, was, I wasn't taking pictures. I wasn't carrying my phone or any gadgets out there other than the tracker, of course. And, um, and my... Getting up every morning, was really, I was really focused on getting out at 5 a.m., which I did pretty much every day. And then getting to sleep every night, which is even more important, um, the rest and recover you as your body regrows overnight. So, yeah, I wasn't, uh, wasn't going to be Mr. Social out there. I just wanted to go do my thing and then, you know, talk about it later. So you, in 2008, finished um, in 54 days, right? Right, correct. And then... 2014 you dropped out um can you kind of describe uh why you had to drop out and i'm also curious you mentioned that even um during this attempt you had moments when you mentally broke down what happens to you when you do mentally break down as you said well in 2014 um first off when i started i really wasn't in as good a shape but but a lot of times on the at you sort of get your trail legs after a while so i figured that would kind of happen uh, we made a few mistakes early, but um, this sounds kind of crazy, but the first day we only went 42 miles as opposed to going 56. And it's, yeah, it's only 14 miles, but it's really important logistically in Maine to do that 56. That was mistake number one. And that sort of put me kind of behind, even though it's only day one, it sort of put me behind where I should have been. Um, and then as to, as we got further down, uh, you know, like the crew wasn't really meshing together as well as I wanted it to. And, and Here's the thing is like the crew has to be happy all the time or at least make me think that they're happy. I mean, that's really important just for them to smile when I'm there. They can they can grovel over other things afterwards when I'm gone, but you need this positive thought all the time. Yeah, when, what does that do to you if they're like complaining or not happy? When well, you... it it just makes me think about so when I get back on the trail when they're complaining, you know, then then I think negatively and everything's like, "Well, this isn't really working or, you know, why do I need to go faster or anything like that?" But when they're all happy, they're like, you know, it's not about, I don't need a cheering squad. Good job, Carl. Way to go. I don't need people to clap their hands. I just want to stay focused, do what we need to do, and, you know, then push me out the door. I just wasn't really accruing the mileage that I really wanted to get at sometimes. And I got in a few arguments with my, my crew guy who deemed himself the crew chief. But I didn't, I didn't want a crew chief. I just wanted two or three people that could be happy together and have fun, you know. Um, it just didn't, you know, just mentally it didn't work together. So every time I left the van in 2014, all I was doing was thinking negatively. So what happened there is I basically got about 50 miles behind what I called record pace, which was Jen Farr's itinerary. And because I was funding it myself and I'd spent a lot of money already on the thing, I'm like, well, I was kind of negative. And I'm like, well, I'm not going to break the record. So I'm just going to go home and not waste my, waste my time out here. So I just went home after about, I think it was like 30 or 31 days you know, things just sometimes just don't work out, and that was just how it was. It's not the end of the world, you know. But uh, I'm really glad that Red Bull came back to me in 2015 and said, we want you to do this one more time. Do you want to, Carl? And they asked me about two weeks after I went home from 2014. I'm like, no way do I want to do it again. So what changed your mind after Red Bull came and said they want you to do it again? When did you change your mind? A few months passed after I talked to initially talked to Red Bull at the uh, 
it was about the beginning of September. And, you know, finally I was kind of recovered and come like, all right, I do this. I could do this again, but it wasn't really, it's the bottom line is it was, we didn't go, go to in 2015 because I wanted more time to do recon and do more work for my crew. And that was really important. Like they said, let's go, let's, let's look a year and a half out on this thing. And Carl, you go ahead and do what you need to do to make it right. And that included having the right person crew for us, the right, uh, you know, the right logistics all taken care of and stuff like that. So we spent a lot of time just preparing for it far more than the other times of just kind of winging it and getting the van and going. And, uh, you know, and, and it definitely worked out. What were kind of the highest moments that you had on the trail, kind of the, the best memories that you have now that you've had a chance to kind of unwind and recover? Right. Well, the higher moments are really obviously finishing in record time, but a lot of the higher moments are when when my wife would come out and run with me or when Scott Jerk was there to run with me. Uh, I mean, early on in the run, I was I was going so, going along so well that it was sort of surreal that, you know, I was a, a whole day ahead of Jen Farr's itinerary, and that made me feel really good. You know, I was super strong, and all of a sudden the low point comes when my shin sort of broke down on day 20 or day 19, evening of day 19. And uh, that would that pro- sort of brought in some low points, but at the same time, you know, I was still ahead of record pace, so that kept me really high as far as, as far as like knowing that I would I could still be successful. I mean, the high points are when you get back to the van and you're done every day, and you can get up the next morning without not wanting to get up. So, kind of the reverse. What was where were the lowest moments for you? Well, the lowest one of the lowest moments is when my shin first went down. I was like, okay, well, this is it. You know, this is. I'm going to have to deal with this issue now for a while. And what happened there? Did you, was that like an overuse thing or did, did you like hit a rock weird? No, it's an overuse thing for sure. My shame, I mean, 50 miles a day will do that after 19 days, yeah. a thousand miles on your legs uh, pretty quickly. But that's pretty typical. It happened to Jen, happened to Andrew, happened to Scott, happened to all of us. And that's just something you have to deal with and, you know, deal with those issues. I mean, that was a low point in my head. Like, here it goes. This is where it gets hard. Because um, it felt pretty darn easy for 19 days, honestly. And, had, you know, had I go back to that and I wouldn't have had that shin in injury, I probably would have done this in 43 days and change, honestly. But not saying I could do it in that, but all I'm saying is that, you know, all of a sudden you had these issues and you sort of feel low about it. But again, I was about a day ahead of pace, so I was positive thinking, you know, I can give some miles back and still have a chance of breaking the record. So I stayed positive in my head as best as I could. And then going back to that moment right in Virginia... Um, right in the mid thirties, I think it was like 34, 35, mm-hmm. what happened there? You, you kind of had to fall asleep on the trail. Right. So that, so that evening before that, where that picture of me laying on the trail, I was, uh, I could have stopped at a place called Daleville was 41 miles into the day. And then there was a 20 mile leg without crew support with a van. So what, what happened there is Eric, my crew chief hiked in a tent, a pad, a pillow, my, you know, to sleep, basically to sleep overnight and food too. So he hiked in four miles, put the tent down on the trail, and I met him about 51 miles into the day, which was good for mileage. Um, everything was fine. I ate well. I really didn't sleep well that night, but at the same time, I mean, everything was, everything was fine. And I woke up the next morning. Um, I kind of got my stuff together, and I started walking. Eric cleaned up the tent and stuff and then caught back up to me. But I just had really zero energy. I slept about six hours, not my normal, seven to eight, and uh, had no energy, you know, so... When I was shown sleeping on the trail during that day, uh, that was a 20-minute cat nap that I asked Eric to throw my thermorest down, and I was hoping that a power nap would help it. And it didn't help much, but um, it felt darn good at that time to lay there. 
It took me five hours to go 10 miles, though, that morning, which is ridiculously slow for something I was doing. And, uh, you know, then I got to the van after that, and I said, I need a little time to take a, a nap. And my wife was like, well, how long? I said, two hours. And they're like, you can't sleep two hours. I said, I'm going to sleep two hours. I don't care. <laughs> so, I mean, that was, you know, I was getting, that was my negative point where all of a sudden Carl was negative, And it didn't resonate so well with my crew. That just, uh, but I'm like, I had to sleep. So I did that. And... I slept a couple hours and I got up and I was still kind of negative, but then I kind of wandered off and got back down the trail again. And then even the next morning I was still fairly negative, but, but again, I wasn't really behind pace, you know, I was still kind of in it. So I kind of turned the switch the next morning, um, after going seven miles with my wife in the morning in the dark. And I said, Carl, you've got to turn off the mean switch. So I turned off the mean switch and started smiling again. Mm -hmm. I mean, Beyond just like the record and and what you were achieving, was it fun? <laughs> was it fun? Well, the AT uh, trying to break a record. It's it's forty six days of misery. I mean, the first day is great because you feel fresh. Uh, second day is not so bad. Third day you get a little tired, and then it becomes a grind. Um, is it fun? It's fun now, obviously, to talk about it. And I look back at at the good times and the struggles that I went through. But what's fun is talking about being able to be successful at going through all that misery. I mean, it's every single day is tough. I mean, every time there's a hill, you're just like, oh, I got to go up this hill. Even downhill would be tough. It's, is it fun? I mean, again, it's fun talking about it later. It's not necessarily fun while you're out there and it hurts all the time. And especially, you know, I talk about hundred milers. Is it fun? Well, it's fun when you win. It's fun when you finish. But but there's stories out there and grinding stories of everybody, regardless of they're fast or slow, that, that it hurts, you know. Uh, but we do it because we want success for ourselves, I think. And that's for most mostly that's what's important for all of us that do this. It's not about how fast you are all the time. It's just the, the journey that's completed that's, you know, feels successful. So when you're like about to go to sleep or, or thinking about this, what do you remember is it is it just kind of like tunnel vision, like tree after tree, or are there specific moments that just pop in your head? Yeah, I, I mean, I remember things randomly out there, you know, and if someone would ask me, like, what are the best stories out there, it's really hard for me to say there's a story, you know. Um, the random stuff that comes up to me, I uh, remember, you know, going under a, getting under a shelter when it initially started the rain for nine minutes when it poured in Maine, and I should have, I should have got wet at that time, I shouldn't have been at the shelter, but... For some reason, I stepped, I was right at a shelter when it started sheeting rain. For nine minutes, I sat there and stayed dry. I walked out, the rain stopped, and I never got wet. Like that thing, you know, it's, it's very vivid in my mind. It is definitely tunnel vision. It's like the green tunnel is truly a green tunnel. I mean, the landscape changes. I mean, Maine and New Hampshire are very tight. Vermont, you get more um, tall standing trees, maple trees, things like that. The, the woods become a little more open. And I remember crewing for Scott Jurek when I met him in Shenandoah when he was coming up north. He's like, Carl, this is boring. It's all, it's all, he's just joking around, but it's kind of like, it's boring. It's just, it's just trees. There's nothing to see. I said, I said, what you see is the green tunnel, not the, not the view of the mountain, you know? And that's the beauty of the whole AT is that it's, uh, the beauty is in the woods, not the vista that you see standing on a rock. I think one of the coolest things about the AT record is kind of the fraternity that you guys have built. Mm -hmm. Um, for for the past record holders, you know Scott and Aaron and Jen, um, what is your guys's relationship and um, particularly Scott? 
who broke the record last year. Um, how did you guys get to know each other? And then obviously you both crewed each other. You guys returned the favor. Why do that? Well, Scott and Jen and Andrew, we all know what it feels like to be on the AT for that long. No one else can, can tell you anything and say, oh, I know what you feel like. Well, no, you can't. You don't know what I feel like. So Scott knew what I was feeling like. I knew what Scott was feeling like when I crewed him. So I could relate to every single thing he was saying in terms of like the issues, the, the pain, the, the, the misery. Um, that's what makes us better friends, you know, because we understand what each other feels like. No one else can understand that until you do it. And uh, that's sort of what brings friends together a little bit more. I think between Scott and I helping each other, I mean, my plan wasn't to go out and to help Scott to learn from my attempt. It was really to help him as a friend because I wanted to see him be successful, you know. I mean, he kind of hadn't been racing for a couple years. All of a sudden, he's going to do the AT. I heard about it five days before he started. I didn't even know he was doing it. And I heard that from a random friend who was standing in my kitchen. He's like, hey, you know Scott's doing the AT? I'm like, no, what's up with that? I mean, I'd love to help him. So I just contacted him quickly and said, hey, I can help you because he was kind of winging it. Um, and I knew a lot more about the AT than he did. So I just wanted to help. And it was a good opportunity for me to take my van, go camp for three or four weeks, and and train for hard rock, really. I mean... So I helped him out. Mm -hmm. I helped him get back to pace. And then, uh, you know, I didn't expect him to return the favor. I never asked him. He approached me and said, hey, I'll help you at the end, you know, or whenever you want me, he said. When you were um, when you were crewing him, even even maybe joking, did part of you continue to think? Because at that point, you knew you were going for it next summer. Did you think when you saw him, like, oh, man, I'm helping him every step make my life a little bit more difficult next summer? It, that didn't really – I wasn't even thinking about that. I was just thinking about, you know, helping him get the record because if you break it by 10 minutes, it's it's still – the record is still yours. Um, sure, it helped to have him only break it by three minutes and not, or three hours and not, you know, 30 hours or 40 hours. But at the same time, uh, I wasn't really thinking about that at all. I just kind of wanted him to go do as best he could. And when I saw what he was doing in Maine, I mean, he was not sleeping. He was, you know, he was brutal. But uh, that also, I mean, honestly, it made me um, a little bit stronger, too, because knowing what the misery that he went through is that I could probably endure the same thing. Because both of us have done a lot of things in ultra running with hundreds and things like that and dealt with pain. And uh, I'm like, if he can do it, I can do it. So it definitely helped me, um, you know, get through the misery of, of just completing the thing. Mm -hmm. So um, he came in, I think, one of my favorite things to learn <laughs> out of this whole trip is that he finished the last 31 miles with you. Um, was that pre-planned? And I guess, why did you want him to be there with you to finish off the record? Uh, it wasn't really pre-planned to have him do the last 30, but that's sort of logistically worked out that way. Uh, from Neil's gap to the end is a good place for him to run. I mean, it was great to have him at the end because he and I when were on the trail like that. We're just chatting about each other. Or about our about our past, sort of, you know, old stories that no one else knows about except he and I. So that definitely made the time go by faster, for sure. But uh, he was very instrumental in the last week. It wasn't just that last 30 miles. He, yeah. he did some crewing for me that my other part of my crew guys really couldn't do because he was that extra person. And that made a huge difference. Uh, he was very instrumental in me breaking the record by as much as I did, put it that way, I guess. Did you guys ever joke about that, though, about him helping you break his own record? Uh, we haven't joked about it yet, but I think—I mean, I think next time I see him, we hang out or something. Uh, my friend, another friend of mine, Ian Torrance, is getting married, so I'll see him there probably the next time, and I'm sure we'll have some more stories about it. Uh, and so, yeah, yeah. So you closed out um, with 
right 85 86 miles pretty much straight mm-hmm. through um and that was because you wanted to break it by as much as possible right well, I would have finished on an 85-mile day regardless of what the thing was. I mean, why should I go to sleep when I have 30 miles left, right? I mean, you smell the barn at that point, of course, right? So it's to me to do that 85 miles the last day, if it would have been 100, I would have done 100. All you have to do is keep eating, keep drinking, and deal with the issues, you know? I mean, that 85 miles the last day was, I mean, it sounds crazy to say, but that was kind of child's play. That was, I re- negative splitted that thing, like, no problem. Um, really? Yeah, I did actually. Not by, I mean, not by a ton. I'm 42 miles. I was exactly 12 hours and it was 43 miles. I was like 1130 for the next 43. So not by a ton, but yeah, I mean, I was on full on autopilot. The finish, um, describe what what that was like, like the last hundred meters. Um, you know, it was in the dark early morning in Georgia. What did it feel like to touch your hands on the plaque and, and have your crew around you? Well, I mean, the last 100 meters, I could see the lights up on uh, up on Springer from the Red Bull had a, one, one small spotlight up there, so I could see it, and I was like, finally, I've made it, you know? Um, Scott and everyone else who was walking up with me sort of backed off and let me have it myself, and then when I tagged the, tagged the stone there, I said, game over, and believe me, it was really cool to I'd say I don't have to run in the morning, but at the same time, you know, we did our little interview and stuff on the top, a few pictures, and then we went back down to the van. We went to sleep for two hours and or three hours or something, and I woke up the next morning. I was like, well, what do I do now? <laughs> um, <laughs> I sort of felt like I wanted to go. I didn't want to go out again, and it felt good to just lay there, but at the same time, it's sort of surreal. Like, wow, it's actually over, you know, because you never think it's going to end when you're at day 35. You're just like, I'm never going to get there, but all of a sudden, you blink and game over, you know? I'm like, okay, I actually got it. And I was, certainly I was ecstatic. I was psyched, but it wasn't like I was jumping up and down, you know, doing backflips. I just, uh, like, well, all right, well, that's over. Now what's next? And what's next is going to Atlanta and taking a nap and eating some dinner. <laughs> um, like I said, you know, I, I, things are in the past and I don't think of this as being, I mean, it's a grand achievement, you know, it's fantastic, but it's been kind of surreal. I got back home to Utah and I started working in my yard just like before. I'm just not running because my legs are like lead right now, but it's a, uh, it's a great feeling that it's over. Um, but for me anyway, I'm just like, hey, okay, what's next? <laughs> that was ultra runner Carl Meltzer talking with reporter Kit Fox. You might not be looking to set a fastest known time on your local trail, but chances are you wouldn't at least mind a PR. Or maybe you just would like to feel a bit more confident making your way over tricky terrain. Whatever your trail running goals may be, you'd be hard-pressed to find a better source for tips than Golden Harper. Golden is the founder of Ultra Running Shoes and a competitive trail runner. Producer Christine Fennessy spoke with Golden during our Runner's World Half and Festival weekend in October. Ultra is the title sponsor of our three-day event, and Golden is busy all weekend long giving clinics on shoes and running form. His first clinic on that Friday afternoon was about trail running technique, and it was well-timed, just a half hour before more than 400 runners would hit the dirt for the trail race. Golden Harper has been running and racing practically his entire life. He ran his first marathon when he was 10, and he ran cross-country in high school and college. But at heart, 
He's a mountain runner. What I love about trail running is the freedom that comes from it and the camaraderie that comes with it too. It's, it's much more chill atmosphere. But that's not the only draw. According to Golden, running off-road can also stave off injuries. Uh, what people don't understand about running injuries is that uh, most of them are from repetitive motion that causes muscle imbalances. Most people have too strong of um, just their real core muscles, and their stabilizers are too weak and aren't uh, balanced out the way our bodies are built to move. We, we were created or evolved to move over uneven terrain. And as we do that, it makes the proper proportion of muscles um, in balance. And so trail running balances out the muscle structure. It sends a shock different ways every single step, and it balances your body out. Golden wants to share both his love and knowledge of trail running with as many people as possible. So after he and I talked, he took to the mic and addressed a crowd of runners, including me. Okay, everyone, welcome to our Trail Running 101. Who would all be running a race in about 30 minutes. How many first time trail racers do we have here today? We were all there for the start of the ultra 3.8 mile trail run in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. The Friday afternoon race kicks off our Runner's World Halfen Festival weekend in October. More than 100 runners arrived early for Golden's trail running clinic. Some were eager for tips that might give them an edge, while others were looking for ways to simply stay upright on the course's technical terrain. And there's some basic tenets of regular running form that um, will employ, and then there's some trail-specific stuff as well. First and foremost, Golden says, you need to have good posture. Now you just want to push your chest and hips forward. So you, you want to think chase your chest or run proud, run tall, okay? Then Golden starts wildly swinging his arms back and forth across his body like he's fending off a swarm of mosquitoes. So we don't want to have arms swinging all over the place, okay? You laugh, but a lot of you do this. Uh, this excess motion can cause you to fall. It can cause you to trip, it can cause sprained ankles, and it also uh, is linked to longer ground contact times, which can also lead to more sprained ankles. So uh, what you want to do is you want to get your arms, I want you to think chicken wings, and then relax, okay? So get these chicken wings up here and relax. Make sure the arms stay nice and relaxed, but you want to keep them high, tight, close to the body. To demonstrate his chicken wings, Golden holds his arms in compact Vs on either side of his chest. He runs a few paces to show that as he runs, his chicken wings stay in tight to his sides. His fists never cross the center line of his body. He then adjusts his arm position to demonstrate proper downhill form. And then on downhills, what you can do is you can actually bring your arms out to the sides a little bit. Uh, I got famous for this racing in high school. People would call it the golden glide. Golden's chicken wings now jut out to the sides. And when he swings his arms, it looks like he's trying to elbow imaginary competitors on either side of him. Still, as before, his fists never cross his body's center line. That just helps steady you, give you a little more balance on the downhill. Golden then explains that your elbows should never swing forward past the hips. That's because swinging your arms too far forward can cause you to overstride. That means your foot lands in front of rather than under your body, which is bad because every time your foot hits the ground, it's acting like a brake, and that increases the impact on your body. Keeping a tight arm swing isn't the only thing you can do to reduce impact. So you want to have a nice low impact landing. You don't want to be crashing down the hills. Um, you don't want to be reaching on the uphills. You want your foot to land underneath your knee. To do that, he says, 
just think about keeping your knees slightly bent at all times. And then the fourth thing you want to do is keep quick feet, especially on the trail. Uh, the longer and slower your strides are, the more likely you are to get off balance and fall over. In our quest to stay upright, it's tempting to simply stare down at our feet. But Golden says that when you're running trails, you've got to focus forward on what's coming at you. I look 10 to 15 feet ahead. I plan my spots, and sometimes it's a quick one, two, three, four steps, and then it's a hop step to avoid some, some tricky terrain. He'll sometimes use rocks and down logs like springboards that propel him forward. If Golden's facing a particularly gnarly rock garden or treacherous downhill, he'll use the topography to his benefit. Something that's really helpful in these situations is to actually use the sides of the trail. Um, bank up off the side, left to right, um, and this is a great way to pull pressure off your joints on steep downhills too, is you want to slalom. Bank off the right side of the trail, off the left, back and forth. When it gets really steep, you can cut step. By cut step, he means a shuffling kind of sidestep. Conversely, when you're going up an endless hill, Golden wants everyone to know it is okay to walk. Even the elites power hike on the steep uphills. So it is uh, sometimes more efficient, sometimes more preferred, and certainly not looked down upon if you need to power hike up the hills. With this tip, I had a flashback. I ran this race last year, and it is beautiful, but it is not easy. There's a hill at the end that is so steep, you feel like you're going to bang your knees into your mouth. But I was in a race, so there was no way I was going to walk. So I decided to run, air quotes, up this thing. I passed this woman who was power walking, and by the time I got to the top, I was nearly dead. And of course, the power walking woman just blew by me. She crushed me. I made a note to not do that this time around. With the race just a few minutes off, Bart Yasso, our mayor of running here at Runner's World, took the mic as we racers began heading to the starting line. All right, guys, thanks okay, very thanks much. Thank you, Golden. Golden won our race last year. He's not yeah. talking about that. After the race, I wandered around to see if any of the runners had put Golden's rules to the test. Run tall, keep your chicken wings high and tight, and your feet light and quick. Uh, the arm, arm form to me was really important. I didn't know that. So um, Let's say I, I tend to fall a lot when I run on trails, <laughs> so I got some good advice in, in how to step and keep it up, so that was good. The holding my arms up, you know, and I really concentrated on that and sort of keeping my elbows in. And I really found because the trail was more rocky than I'm used to, the trails we run on are a little bit flatter, and, uh, and so it really helped me keep stable. That was Cheryl Suttle, David Howland, and Grace Hanakakis. As for me, as soon as I hit that monster hill at the end, I started to power walk. And when I got to the top, I did not want to die. And no one passed me on the way to the finish line. For more advice on how to get faster at running trails, go to our show page at runnersworld.com audio. And now it's time for The Kick with producer Brian Dalek and reporter Kit Fox. Okay, to start off The Kick this week, I want to take a step back to last month. There is a, a story about a 15-year-old African-American runner. His name is Chase Coleman, and he's a runner with autism. And so he's in a race. He got lost along the course. And so as he was off course, he ran across somebody by his car. And as he approached the guy, 
He was shoved to the ground. The guy yelled at him, get out of here. And from there, um, the story's kind of had a lot of wheels and momentum for various reasons besides running. Yeah, the story really appeared everywhere last month. You know, it was in the Washington Post. One of the really sad things about that article is is that um, Chase's mom spoke with the reporter and said that he was very devastated about this and that he didn't really want to run anymore. And so it sounds like, you know, Chase and his mom are, are very upset about this. But we've since um, written an article kind of updating on the situation. Yeah, so the guy who shoved Chase to the ground, he was older than Chase, obviously. Um, he's been charged with second-degree harassment, so that's going to work itself out however that plays out. But from the running's perspective for Chase, as you mentioned, like when he started running a few years ago, his mom told our reporter, Danielle, look, his grades have gotten better. He's better in school. He's better in church. He loves being on his cross-country team. He loves running. But he wanted to stop running. But since then, um, some of his coaches, they've rallied around him along with the community and the police department. They're actually putting together a race this weekend, November 19th at Corcoran High School. Is going to be called Keep Going, Don't Stop, Keep Going. That's what they yell at Chase when he, you know, is in his races. It's going to be a 1.5-mile fun run around the school. And, you know, it's bringing together his cross-country team. They have shirts. And um, so that's great on that end. Yeah, we love, as always, the support of the running community. And we really, really want Chase to just find that passion and love for running again. So keep going, Chase. Keep running. Um. But to move on, we want to um, talk about more and more world records falling. It seems like every week we talk yeah, about a new and, world record. And this one, um, we can credit to Elvis. Yeah. Elvis has a new world record. Yes. Um, Elvis is, is back from the dead. Um, maybe <laughs> He is the king of running. Yes, and has turned into the king of running. But actually, um, <laughs> this was the Las Vegas Marathon. Naturally, um, Mike Wardian uh, dressed up as Elvis, Mm -hmm. and he not only broke the world record for fastest marathon dresses, Elvis, running two hours, 38 minutes, and four seconds, Mm -hmm. he won the race. Overall. Overall. Outright. Dressed as Elvis, um, you know. Most people who go for these uh, these pending Guinness World Records, they're not expected to win the full race. No, uh, Michael Warden won the full race, and of course, I, I imagine, I can't confirm this, but in my head, I imagine him crossing the finish line, giving a little <laughs> point, and just going, thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> exactly. So, But we, we should all, you know, if you don't know who Mike Wardian is, 42-year-old ultra runner from Arlington. Um, he has a lot of crazy records. He actually recently set the record for the fastest average time in the world marathon majors, all of them, in one calendar year. So that's six marathons. Yeah, that's um, Tokyo, Boston, London, Berlin, Chicago, and finally New York City. And the average time for him is two hours, 31 minutes, and nine seconds. I I actually had to call up Mike and just, you know, hear why he wanted to go after the Elvis record that was held by Ian Sharman um, after, you know, all he's put his body through this year. My buddy Ian Sharman had the record and I was like, oh, man, I totally uh, like I'm pretty sure I could I could, you know, do that time. And like it would be so fun to run as Elvis. Like, why wouldn't you want to do that? I'd visited Graceland and seen how just crazy cool his lifestyle was and just like 
he had planes that said like taking care of business on them and yeah he had three tvs because that's what the president had and i don't know man he was just seemed like he was like living life right congrats to mike or should i say elvis i'm just maybe you should i'm just saying we've never seen a picture of them in a room together his costume was pretty great even had the you know the big black wig yeah good job and sunglasses of course Okay, so the final thing, Kit, we're, sadly we're not here next week. We're taking oh, a week off miss you, for Thanksgiving to eat a lot of turkey and pumpkin pie. But we did want to mention what is starting on Thanksgiving next week, and that's our holiday run streak, which is perfect because I'm doing a pumpkin pie 5K. I do that every year. I think you're doing a race. I'm doing, a, I'm doing a turkey trot. Okay, so we're both going to be able to start this. We wanted to bring in kind of the founder of our holiday run streak, Megan Keita. She's our training editor. Um, Megan, hi. Hi, Megan. Hi, Brian. Hi, Kit. <laughs> so for people who have never done the run streak or maybe they've done it before and need a refresher, what is our holiday run streak all about? The idea is, you know, a lot of people tend to fall off the wagon during December just because they're shopping or they're going to parties or they're traveling. Kit really hasn't been running at all. Oh, Kit. (laughs) I've been eating a lot of food, though. All right. Well, (laughs) most people don't need a streak to get them to eat food. But an exercise streak can be motivating to a lot of people. Um, That's kind of how it began. A friend and I, back in 2011, were talking about how we tend to kind of uh, let running go by the wayside during the holiday season. And we had the idea that, hey, what if we just committed to running a mile every single day between Thanksgiving and New Year's, which, you know, it depends when Thanksgiving is, but that it ends up being about 40 days. What is it this year? 39, give or take, usually a little less. And uh, we thought that would be a doable, interesting challenge. Neither of us had ever done a streak before. so. And we've been, Runners World has been doing this since that point, pretty much. Right. What year did it start? 2011. 2011. So you said a mile a day. A lot of people, they don't run, you know, seven days a week all the time. So that's something brand new. And one mile, are we saying, like, super easy, anything technical to that? What if you don't want to run one mile every day? It's just too much for you. But you want to participate. Uh, yeah. Some people have, you know, done their own spin on the street mm-hmm. where they just, you know, vow to do some kind of exercise or activity for 10 to 15 minutes every day, about as long as it would take them to run a mile. So, you know, whether that's walking, whether that's doing yoga, going to the gym. Can it be eating a piece of pumpkin pie every day? Uh, that is kind that's of a, a workout for your job, but doesn't really count as activity. You know, the idea is to Fork expend to calories, not to take them in. Um, <laughs> so, so some people do feel more comfortable just doing an exercise streak. Um, that's not what I did when I did it. Uh, I, I ran at least a mile every day easy. You know, I wasn't doing any speed work at the time. It was just, you know, the idea was to just get out there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, some days I didn't really feel like going and I would run a mile and I would want to stay out there. Some days I didn't really feel like going and I would run a mile and I would come home. And, you know, the whole point is to just kind of keep your momentum when it's otherwise hard to do so. Yeah, I certainly liked it last year. I did it for the first time between Thanksgiving and New Year's. And, you know, some days it felt like a slug, but I always felt better afterward, even if it was just like a few miles. And it's kind of informal how we do it. Like, how do people check in with this? We don't have like some extensive log for you to send your miles into, right? Right, right. Yeah, we usually just use a hashtag. The hashtag is RWRunStreak. 
Uh, you can use that on Twitter and Instagram. I guess Facebook, you could still use hashtags. I don't yes, know. you can. <laughs> I quit Facebook. Um, <laughs> but, but yeah, that's the kind of the informal way to check in with other people who are doing the streak. Okay, so yeah, please use the hashtag RWRunStreak on social media. Feel free to tag us at RWAudio. And, you know, we want to see your pictures, even if it's like, Five feet of snow. We want to see you keep going, especially um, if it's five feet. Of <laughs> snow. Absolutely. Yeah, that's yeah. that's when the streak becomes a lot of fun. It becomes when real. You have to get that one mile fun. in when it's dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> you and I have different definitions of fun. Right? Yeah. Well, Megan, thanks for coming down and thanks, telling Megan. us a little bit about thanks, the run Megan. streak. Yeah. And happy Thanksgiving to everyone. That's it for this week's show. But before we go. Do you have any 2017 goals, any training, nutrition, injury prevention, or motivation questions around those goals? If so, please send them to us. I'll be hosting a roundtable with our experts here at Runner's World that's devoted exclusively to listener and reader questions about how to nail their targets in the coming year. To submit your questions, go to our show page, runnersworld.com audio. You can also tweet us at RW Audio or send us an email at rwaudio at rodale, Okay, now we're really done. Thanks again for all of you who have left those ratings and reviews, and please keep them coming. They really help. I'm David Willey, Editor-in-Chief of Runner's World, and this week's show was produced by Sylvia Ryerson, Christine Fennessy, Brian Dalek, and Claire Tregesser. And listen... We're taking a break next week to hang out with our families for Thanksgiving and eat a little too much. But if you're like me, you will start your day like you start every Thanksgiving day with a good morning run. Have a great holiday and we'll see you on December 1st.